Well, it's great to be with you this morning. We're in a series called We Believe, and we are in the third week of the series. And this series is all about um, the kind of the fundamentals of the Christian faith, the kind of non-negotiables, bottom line, the, the most important things to believe when you're following Jesus. And one of the reasons why this series is so important is because we're going to be talking about truth and uh, effectively what we believe, what we think in the end always dictates how we live. And I was thinking about this process uh, as I was preparing for this message, and I became aware of a story which is in the music press right now about a hip-hop artist in the States called Bobby Ray Simmons Jr. I don't know if any of you have heard of him. You may have heard of his music. I don't know. But he's basically, his kind of stage name, his music name is B.O.B. Bob, okay, which personally I think he may have wanted to take a little bit more time working on that title. But anyway, now... Bob is becoming famous not only for his music, but because he also believes that the earth is flat. And he doesn't just believe it. He, he's, he's kind of like an evangelist about this issue. He is, uh, he's arguing and putting it out on social media and getting into debate with people that the earth is flat and that NASA and maybe other space agencies around the world uh, have been effectively keeping everybody else in the dark. There's a conspiracy theory uh, and they guard the outer edges of the flat earth to stop other people falling off the edges. And he's so committed to his view that the earth is flat and not round, is that he has begun to crowdfund. He's raising or looking to raise $200,000. This is a true story. You can look in the press right now. To send at least one satellite, more if he can, up into space to prove that NASA have been lying to us and the earth actually is flat and not round. Now, one commentator did say that they thought possibly it would be a lot cheaper just to send Bob to university, but maybe that's a little unkind. But the point is, what he believes is manifesting itself, showing itself in the way he lives. What we think effectively in the end always leads us into a lifestyle. Clear, if you get clear on truth, in other words, in our thinking, it will always set us free in the way we live. That's what the Bible version of that would be. John says, uh, Jesus says this in John 8, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In other words, the way you think and how you, uh, what truth you own in your heart will lead you into a lifestyle. And Jesus says, if you know my truth, it's going to set you free. Paul says this about a changed life. Romans 12, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, there's something about the way we think and believe which leads us into change. So, when we're doing a series like this, this is not an intellectual exercise. We will use our brains and we're challenging our thinking, but the aim is to produce changed lives. And we're doing it by using an old creed called the Nicene Creed. It's like a statement of faith, uh, centuries old. And we're using this as, if you like, the jump-off point into looking at key Christian faith statements and doctrines. And so far, Andrew's opened up the series. If you haven't heard his messages, I really want to suggest you listen to them. He talked about week one, about our belief in God, one God. Week two, about Jesus and who he is. And now today, if you like, I want to take a different angle. And I want us to talk about not who we believe he is, but who he says or what we believe he says about who we are. So I'm going to read you the first bit of the creed. And we're going to get to the point where it talks about God, Jesus becoming man. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, all of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, 
True God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. Jesus, God, becomes man, becomes a baby in a manger. We call it the incarnation. And we celebrate this every year at Christmas. And in that moment, if you like, when Jesus, when God becomes man, it speaks to us on many levels. It speaks to us of God's goodness, his kindness. It speaks to us of our brokenness and our neediness. In other words, that we need a rescuer, a savior. But it also speaks to us about the value God places on a human life. Now, on one level, if you like, we already know this intuitively. We know that, that human life is valuable. It's precious. Think for a moment, if you like, of the most treasured possession you have. Um, and think then of the most important person or people in your lives. Think of them both. Now, if I was to say, well, you've got, you got the possession and you've got the person or people. If I was to say to you now, I need you to choose. You're going to keep one or the other. I'm sure pretty much not pretty much, hopefully everybody in the room, if not, we need to talk, would choose the person. Although we get attached to our possessions and we like things, okay, and that's not necessarily wrong, but we get attached to them, we know, bottom line, that people are far more valuable than stuff. Try it another way. If, you, if you've got a, a wallet in your pocket, I'm not asking for you, we're not going to do another offering just now, but if you have a wallet and you have a photo in it, why don't you bring that out? Just Pull your wallet out of your pocket and bring the photo out. Or if you haven't, if you probably have got a phone with you. Pull that out if you haven't got it out already. And uh, I want you to show the person next to you what the photo is of on, your front, on the front of, of your phone or the, or the photo in your wallet. Now, pretty much no one carries around with them a picture of their favorite car. Well, I actually probably do know one or two people who do. But on the whole, most of us don't carry in our wallets a picture of our car or on the front of our phone. What we carry with us is pictures of the people that we care for. And we do that because intuitively we know, we believe that people matter. They're valuable to us. And not just people we know. People we know, people, all, people we don't know, their lives matter. We only just have to hear news, don't we, of you know, tens of people gunned down in Las Vegas or thousands made homeless by a tropical storm or millions having to flee Syria And the reaction it stirs in our hearts is because we know human life matters. So we know it intuitively already. But at the same time, we kind of live in a world which is confusing on this as well. We we live in a nation which is divided over all sorts of issues actually to do with the value of a human life. There is huge debate in our nation and in our culture about the rights of an unborn child, when life should or should not be protected. We, again, have huge debate in our nation about how to respond to the needs of thousands of people seeking asylum in our country. And it's not just all out there. In our own hearts, at times, we get confused. Whilst we may say, and that fact, we genuinely believe that all people matter, the truth is we can carry secret discrimination where we consider some people more significant than others. Or maybe for us the issue is not that we don't believe that other people's lives really matter and have great value invested in them, but we really do struggle to see that that is true of ourselves. What we believe on this issue 
about the, the value invested in a human life matters because it hugely affects the way we live. So we're going to look at a passage in the Bible which really helps us on this issue. And if you've got a Bible, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. If you haven't, it's going to come up on the screen. And we're going to look at three verses. We're going to read from verse 26 to verse 28. And this is, if you like, probably the text to look at, which gives us a huge insight to the value that God invests in human life. So this is what it says in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves, uh, moves on the ground. The first thing I want you to notice is that God creates people. God thinks about, God designs, God plans to create men and women. If you like, we're not an accident, we're planned by him. Psalm 139, famous psalm, says this, For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, Although we know God creates and God creates people, the fact alone that he does this shows you or says something to you about the value God invests in humanity. When you create something, you put something of value into it immediately by the fact you created it. Um, this is a special treat for you today because I've dug out something that I created. This is, there is, uh, you're going to ask if there's no end to my talent. There clearly is a lot of ending to my talent. But this is something I made when I was at junior school. I didn't make this recently, in case you're worried. This is, uh, this is a penguin I made. I don't know how old I was, probably about eight or nine. And um, it wasn't my A-level art. I didn't do A-level art. Uh, my youngest son saw this around our house today and said, what's that duck doing there? But it's not a duck, I told him. It's a penguin. Now, a little story attached to the penguin. I made it at junior school. But uh, several years ago, just as we were about to have our... We, yeah, just our first son was born. Uh, my wife, Sarah, got to know a lady called Xenia. And they were in an antenatal group together. And they lived in Catford, her and her partner, Keith. I don't, uh, we got to know them a little bit. Keith, uh, turns out, was an artist. And uh, Keith turned out that he was a pretty serious artist. In fact, let me tell you something about Keith. Uh, Keith Tyson, uh, his work was primarily concerned with the interest in generative systems and an embrace in the interconnectedness of existence. I don't know what that means either, but I thought I'd say it because it sounds a bit more like Andrew Wilson. So... Anyway, I showed Keith Tyson, who went on in 2002 to be the winner of the Turner Prize. So this is about a year after I got to know him and chatted to him. He said to me, I see you captured the true madness of penguin life. So there we go. Um, Turner Prize winner likes my penguin. Now, when you create something as bad as my penguin is, you put something of value into it. It matters to you. It, you design it. You'll think about it. You may not think I designed it very well, but you invest something of value simply because you created it. When God creates people, he immediately, in the process, is investing value into us. We're designed, thought of. And God does that with humans. And not just does he do that with humans, but obviously he does that with all creation. 
But what's amazing about the creation story when it comes to men and women is that men and women are not on the same level as the rest of creation. What you find as you read through the creation story is that the creation of humankind is the pinnacle moment of creation. I want you to try and catch the mood of what happens when, man, when God creates men and women. In Job 38, it says this about creation, that the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. It's like creation was like an incredible show. Think about, I don't know if you've ever been to a huge fireworks display. Uh, I remember back in uh, 2000, just, you know, 99 into 2000 on New Year's Eve, that moment we went up to town, up to the River Thames, and they did a huge fireworks display of the Thames, and there were thousands of people. And as you come, we're gathering, there was a sense of anticipation and expectation and celebration as this whole moment was beginning to unfold. Well, that is a little picture of what it would have been like in this moment at creation. And I want to read you through the different days and what God creates on different days. Now, this is not to say there's, there's debate, theological debate, about whether it's an actual day or whether a day stands for uh, you know, a whole season of time. And that's not what we're talking about today. But I want to just, if you like, literally just take about one day, day two, day three, day four. Day one, God creates light and darkness. Day two, God puts the sky uh, into place. Day three, God creates the land and the seas, and causes the land to produce plants. Let me tell you a little bit about plant life. Did you know that the finished pine tree, just one finished pine tree, if you were to take the root system of one tree and combine it, those roots can extend as far as 30 miles, one tree. During an average growing season, a mature oak tree, the kind of oak trees you get around here, can give off 28,000 gallons of moisture. The oceans contain enough salt to cover all the continents to nearly a depth of 500 feet. That's day three. Day four, God does the sun and the moon and the stars. You know, the nearest star to us is still four light years away. That is 25 million, million miles away from the earth. And in 1989, they discovered something that they called the Great Wall of Galaxies. The Great Wall of Galaxies stretches not for four light years, but for 500 million light years long. And that Great Wall consists of 15,000 galaxies, and each galaxy contains millions of stars. That was day four. Day five, God speaks, and he does birds and marine life. I'm going to make some things fly, I'm going to make some things swim. The wandering albatross, I knew you were going to ask about that. The wandering albatross can glide for six days, six days without beating its wings, and can even sleep mid-air while traveling at 35 miles an hour. They reckon it can go round the world in 46 days, which is somewhat better than Ryanair. Swifts. Swifts remain airborne for between two to four years at a time. They estimate that a young swift flies non-stop for over 300,000 miles between leaving the nest and making its first landing. It's incredible. Day six, God goes, oh, I'm going to do creatures on the land. The duck-billed platypus, not one that I would have thought up, but anyway, there we go, Adam got to name it, can store up to 600 worms in its cheek pouches, which is a fantastic ability, I'm sure. The reproductive cycle of a rat. You're going to love this because obviously there are no rats in London. The reproductive cycle of a rat is so fast that within two years, the mating of two rats can lead to the existence of 15,000 rats. 
One for you to think about later on. The giraffe, the tallest animal, has a tongue which is a foot and a half long, so it means it can clean its own, year, its own ears. The snail can sleep for up to three years. And six times God creates, and each time he steps back, and he says, that's good, I like it. And if you like, the anticipation and the expectation in creation is kind of growing, and the angels are watching, and there's, it's kind of moving like any great show would move to a crescendo. And the angels are on tenthooks. And now, having finished with the duck-billed platypus, God reaches down, grabs the earth, starts to form man and breathes life into him. And there's silence and suddenly the whole place explodes with singing and celebration. It's like every day God has been creating. Every day God has blown us away. Every day he speaks and something comes into being. But now for the first time God forms something, breathes, and he creates men and then women later. And this time God steps back and not just says, it's good. This time he steps back and says, it's very good. It's very good. When God creates man and woman, this is the pinnacle moment of creation. God forms Adam. God breathes into Adam, completely unique from all the rest of creation. And God says, now it's very good. In fact, he says, do you know what? When I form Adam, I'm going to make something in my image and in my likeness. And those two words that we read in verse 26 of Genesis 1 are critical when it comes to understanding something of the value that God invests in a human life. The Hebrew word for image that is used in Genesis 1 is basically a word that often talks about something that was made to represent the Creator. So, for example, a king might create a statue that, that they would create statues and put these statues out in the kind of outer reaches of the kingdom to represent their kingdom rule. It was something to represent. So God was making man to represent him on the earth. And you see that, don't you? Because there is immediately delegated responsibility to Adam. So it says later on in the verses, fill the earth and subdue it. That's what I want you to do. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky, over every living creature that moves on the ground. In chapter 2, Adam gets the responsibility of naming the animals, which I think must have been a really fun job. So we're made in his image to represent him. And then also God says, I'm going to make him and her in my likeness. The word for likeness simply refers to the sense of similarity. They're going to be similar to me in a certain way, God says. And you read that in Genesis 5, you'll see the same word used about Adam and his son Seth. Adam has a son called Seth who is in his image and his likeness. When you, if you're fortunate enough to be a parent, when you have kids, there is something about your children which is similar to you. They don't look exactly the same. You're not exactly the same people, but there's a sort of family resemblance. Uh, for those of you who have dogs, there can be, I'm just going to leave it with you, uh, whether there's a resemblance or not. But you see a family resemblance, and God is saying, I'm going to invest something of myself, and I'm going to make him in some ways similar to me. Now, the Bible doesn't go into the detail about, well, what does that really mean to be similar? Theologians have debated it and tried to kind of sometimes lock it down into very specific definitions. But actually, it's very difficult, I think. The Bible doesn't give us specific definitions in what ways exactly that means. It just means that there is something of God's stamp, his DNA, 
put on every human life. Something about our mental capacity, our ability to reason, something about our ability to explore and create and to hold moral views. All these things and others reflect something of who he is. There's a trace of his stamp and likeness in us. And if you take these words image and likeness together, what it means is that when he created mankind, he creates us to reflect him and to represent him. And this is true of every human being, regardless of their sex, of their race, of their status. Now, it's an incredible creation story, but the problem about the creation narrative, as we know, is you have Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and then that's followed by Genesis 3. You've got to get up pretty early in the morning to catch me out theologically, okay? Chapter 3 is the story of when sin enters the world. God creates, and now chapter 3, things go wrong. Rebellion breaks out. Adam and Eve decide to abandon God's lead. Sin enters the world, and it starts to corrupt everything. Now, the question is, if our innate value as people is derived fundamentally from the fact that God creates us in his image and likeness, how much damage does sin do to that? Are we so broken by sin and so corrupted by sin that we are effectively no longer image bearers? Is it destroyed? Are we no longer therefore valuable? We would have been valuable before sin, but now sin has broken us so badly and corrupted us so much that are we no longer image bearers? Well, without doubt, obviously sin has affected our ability to reflect God and represent him. We know that, don't we? Just about ourselves, just a brief reflection on our own lives tells us that sin has corrupted us. We know how poorly we reflect or represent God. We, we know that we're not all that we could be. We are fallen, polluted, we are broken. In fact, you know, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, when God makes us, it's very good. But obviously you read the New Testament The description of us before God is that we're just dead in our sins. We're spiritually dead. We need a rescuer. That all said, however, when you read the Bible after Genesis 3, after sin has entered the world, what you find is the Bible still refers to men and women as image bearers. Genesis 9 says this, Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for the image of God has For in the image of God has God made man. James 3 says this, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. In other words, even in our fallenness, even in our brokenness, something of the DNA stamp of God remains. Without doubt, the image of God, his image and likeness in us is distorted by sin, but it is not, however, destroyed. Now, what does that mean? When we think about the value of humanity, what does it mean to say, actually, we believe everyone is made in God's likeness and in his image, and it doesn't matter how broken they are, that still remains. What does that mean for us? Well, I want to say a few things it means. It means that we need to be absolutely clear that every human life, however broken, is equally valuable. Men, women, children, the elderly, whatever background, whatever race, equally 
valuable. And it means as his representative, if you're a believer, an ambassador, a representative of him, it means that we need to not just believe us, but embody this in the way we live out our lives. This should affect the way we live. Truth should affect the way we live. So, therefore, it matters hugely how we respond to issues of inequality and injustice. It matters how we respond to issues of caring for the poor, the elderly, the orphan, the widow. It matters what we think about the unborn child and the disenfranchised teenager on our streets. It matters what we think because we need to take action. It matters how we care for the planet. Not because in some way we're on the same level as the animals. That's not a belief that we hold. The creation story tells us that men and women are the pinnacle of creation. We're not the same as the animals in the plant life. But it matters how we care because God invests in us responsibility to steward creation and to, be, to have dominion and leadership in the planet. We have a responsibility to care. Close to home, it matters how we care for our neighbor. Do we know their names? Our co-worker, the difficult person in the office. If you're at school, it matters how we respond to the kid who's often the victim, that everybody else wants to, to tease and often no one wants to sit with. I wish I had understood that when I was at school. Jesus was asked, wasn't he, by a teacher of the law. He said, Jesus, can you summarize for us the most important things in the law? Just tell us what most matters. And Jesus says, yeah, I can do that. And he says, firstly, love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. In other words, everything you have, put it all on the line. Don't hold back. Don't be kind of like double-minded. Don't sit on the fence. Give it everything. And then he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, love God with everything and love other people as much as you care about yourself. Love them. And Jesus says, that's what counts. That's, that is the definition of a spiritually mature person. That's what counts before God, is to care for orphans and widows. That's what counts. Mother Teresa once said this, when asked about her work in Calcutta. When you see the people on the streets, filled with disease, disfigured by sores, covered with maggots, touch them very gently with great love and delicate care, the way a priest handles the elements of holy mass. For Jesus is there in distressing disguise. This way of thinking and therefore of living is the call on every believer, all of us. Now we have projects in our church which embody this kind of thing. You know, as we get to Christmas, we will doing, we'll be doing the bid red box where we'll get food and people will donate food and we'll do hampers and give them away to people who are less privileged than many of us, which is great. But God doesn't call us to be project people only. This is called to be a lifestyle of living like this. If you have a workplace, if you work in an office, it's like there's a call on you to be the kindest, most compassionate person in your office, to exhibit something of God's love in that place. Jesus said, didn't he, if you want to hold and keep your life, then you'll lose it. But if you'll lose your life for me, you'll gain it. If you can spend your life on the people that I love, God says, then you will find life. As of you, obviously this is a call on all of us, but for others of you, this, this has led you into certain career choices. And I just want to say, as I prepared, I felt God wanted to remind you of why 
you made those choices and why he led you into those choices. Why you work in that school. Why you work in that hospital or in that care home. Or, or why you have chosen that particular route in business or architecture or, or charity work. Whatever it is. Because there was something in there, wasn't there, where God spoke to you about his desire to care and love people. And you have chosen a job along those lines because of that. This should have a huge impact on the way we care for people around us. But also, if you believe this, if you believe that we're made in his image and his likeness, this should have a huge impact on how we believe God views us. To know in our hearts, deep down, to get it clear in our thinking and own it in our hearts, to know that we're made in his image and likeness speaks of dignity, it speaks of security, it speaks of identity and value. And for some of us, we have no problem seeing that in the people around us. But we have a huge struggle seeing it in ourselves. It's like if I was to ask you what kind of picture you carry around when you think about yourself, the image you carry about yourself in no way matches up to what God says about you. A few years ago, I remember... In Catford, there, was, there used to be a cinema, and there was a building opposite the cinema. It's just an old house, which has gone into kind of disrepair, and it began to fall down. And what happened was they just let it fall down. They knocked down the rest of it. There was rubble. They came along. They cleared the rubble, and they just put grass down, and that's what they did. They didn't restore it in any way. And then I remember maybe a year or so later on, there was a huge fire at Windsor Castle. When that fire raged, when that went out, what they did was they didn't take the rubble and just knock it all down and take the rubble away and put grass there. What they did was they started to carefully, bit by bit, put it back together again because they saw that there was something of huge value in this place that they wanted to restore. The coming of Jesus, the incarnation, God becoming man, speaks not only of his grace and goodness and our brokenness, but it speaks loudly to us that God cares about people, that there's something that he wanted to rescue and restore. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he sends his Son. In other words, he sees such value in you that he sends his Son for you. And so in Jesus, God begins an incredible rescue plan to forgive, yes, to clean, yes, to free, yes, but also to begin to restore what's been distorted. 2 Corinthians 3 says this, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What has been lost, what has been distorted, what has been broken now as you come back to Jesus is being gradually restored. As we close, I want to say, if you're here today, and you feel broken, you feel worthless, you feel somehow maybe you've made a huge mess of your life, and you can see the value in other people but not in yourself, I want to say don't walk away. God, I believe, wants to do an incredible work of restoration in your life. Let's stand and we're going to pray together.